Want to help your teachers save over 10 hours per week? Introduce them to School AI. It's not just a tool, it's a partner in the classroom. With School AI, teachers can plan courses in minutes, get real-time learning data, and provide one-on-one tutoring. Plus, it's free for teachers. Visit SchoolAI.com today. School AI, the classroom operating system of the future. That's SchoolAI.com. Focal Point K-12 is an innovative tool that helps teachers and students manage student portfolios. It provides a digital portfolio for students to store their work, set and track their own learning goals, and earn credentials and industry certifications. The platform also uses blockchain technology to ensure the security and safety of student data. Teachers can use Focal Point K-12's real-time dashboards to track student progress and save time with AI-assisted scoring. To learn more, visit focalpoint.education. Principles. Research shouldn't be a maze for students. Scribble offers a unified platform streaming the research and writing process. It integrates with major educational tools, ensures authentic student work, and provides educators with real-time insights. Elevate your school's academic rigor. Learn more at scribble.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-L-E.com. Welcome to Transformative Principle. Today, I'm excited to have Victor Karkar on the program. He's the brain behind Scribble, a game-changing startup that's shaking up the way we do web-based research and collaboration. He is uh, also one of the sponsors of this Summer of AI series, and we're grateful to have Scribble as a sponsor here. He was an instrumental part of the early team at insuranceorder.com, a startup that got bought by a Fortune 500 giant Marsh and McLennan, McLennan, excuse me. And he's also done some venture work and he's been done a lot of different things, designer, product developer, tester, marketer. He's also a tech nerd, a debate, debate person and loves, uh, dreaming about good things and creating ways for people to change the world. So Victor, welcome to transformative principle. Happy to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So you and I talked a few weeks ago about a lot of different things, and we've been doing all these, all these interviews about artificial intelligence. And we've, we've had a lot of different ideas about, we don't need to teach writing anymore. Like we can just have the computer do it. We've talked about banning AI. We've talked about all these different things. And, and you have two perspectives that I think are important. One is the idea of embracing AI because it's here to stay and using it myself and and that's great. And so can you talk about those two ideas of, of how we should approach that and most, and, and why those phrases are like, maybe not the best for what we're trying to do with the rising generation? Yeah, sure. And you know, maybe a little context will be helpful as well. I think in your introduction, you described Scribble as a kind of research and collaboration platform, which it is. But the reason why I think what the work we're doing in the conversation we're having now is relevant in a sharp way with the AI stuff going on in schools right now is that beyond research, we are in the writing process, right? So research and writing oftentimes go together for evidence-based writing. And so we're thinking about deeply about the impact of AI uh, on writing. And as most folks who are listening to this probably already heard and know, there's a lot of sort of anxiety and opportunity around AI, right? So the opportunity is there's this amazing technology that can do all these amazing things. And the anxiety part is worrying about student misuse around AI and AI plagiarism is kind of like the key thing that really is holding people back and causing some concern. So just a little bit of context for why, you know, we've got something to say about the writing process. The work that we do very much spans across research and writing. 
So it's through that lens that I've been having lots of conversations with district leaders in K-12, as well as, you know, college leaders, which community college presidents, for example, VPs of academic affairs, et cetera, in higher ed as well. And, you know, I've been having these conversations, honestly, since about January of this year, so 2023, to try to understand what people's reactions are to both the positive and negative or like the benefits and the potential risks around AI. And I've managed to kind of like boil those down as some sort of profiles that I see that when somebody's saying something to me, why are they saying it? And what is their frame of reference when they're talking about the pluses and the minuses of this new AI era that we're entering into? And so to address kind of the first thing that you mentioned, which is we've just got to embrace it because it's here to stay. I've heard a lot of people say that. And, you know, my view on that, when I having listen to that and listen to the supporting statements around that is that that's not wrong. Actually saying that it's here to stay, that the genie's not going to go back in the bottle. This is out in the consumer market. Students have access to it. Everybody's using it is true. And I think saying that we've got to embrace it because it's here to stay is I would say, yes, but, you know, yes, but what are we actually talking about when we say we've got to embrace it, right? What do we actually mean when we say embrace it? Because there's different ways to use it. And when you say just embrace it, that's a catch-all term. And so what I've been saying is that the folks that typically are in a school or a district that are having disagreements about what to do with the AI, I've sort of seen at least two camps emerge, right? There's the folks that are really focused on the risk, which is sort of like, just as an example, English teachers that are worried about students actually using ChatGPT, for example, to write the papers for them instead of doing the work themselves. And then the, at the other end of the spectrum, you have early adopters that are teachers, let's say, that might be using ChatGPT to generate lesson plans, which saves them a ton of time. Or I've had superintendents say that they're using it to write graduation speeches or reference letters, right? And what's interesting to me is that I think actually both camps are actually right. The problem is we're not all talking about the same thing. So when we say we have to embrace AI, it's here to stay. My response is yes, but what do we actually, what does that actually mean? Right. And, you know, a teacher using it for lesson planning is not the same thing as a student potentially misusing the same technology to do the work for them. And so oftentimes we talk about teaching and learning together. It just goes together. But actually, I think what's part of what's happening here is that actually teaching and learning sort of diverge a little bit here, where teacher use and student use are different things. And to have an administrator or a teacher use it for their work to be productive, to save time, et cetera, is probably not just okay. It's actually probably recommended a great idea because you're in sort of a productivity mode as an adult in the workplace. But that's very, very different from a student whose primary role is to develop cognitive skills and to learn and to develop their own sort of mental abilities, right? And so my clarification really is that when we say we've got to embrace it because it's here to stay, I say, yes, but what are we actually talking about? And one of my concerns is that in that sort of catch-all term, people are conflating the two and we're actually talking past one another. The folks that are actually concerned about the downside risks when it comes to student misuse are not talking about the same thing as the administrators and the teachers that are saying, here are all the potential benefits that even I've experienced. And so I think it's really important to be very clear about what we're talking about, if that makes yeah. sense. If the AI can help, time is a precious commodity. As a principal, you know this all too well. Between lesson planning, grading, and providing personalized feedback, the hours in a day can quickly disappear. What if you could help your teachers get some of that time back? Introducing School AI. School AI is not just a tool. It's your teacher's partner in the classroom. Help your teachers save over 10 hours a week on busy work, allowing them to focus on what they do best, teaching. With School AI, teachers can plan courses in minutes, get real-time data on learning, and even provide one-on-one -on -one tutoring for every student. School AI also provides a FERPA-compliant chat GPT experience. But that's not all. 
School AI's co-teacher feature is like a personal assistant, adapting daily lessons to student interests, checking for understanding, and even automating parent communication. And the best part, it's free for teachers. So if you're ready to reclaim your time and transform your school with the power of AI, visit schoolai.com today. School AI, the classroom operating system of the future. Visit them at schoolai.com. Develop those cognitive skills, then yes, you should be using it. If the AI is hindering those cognitive skills, then you should not be using it. And so that's where this idea of there's, there's a very real difference between having the AI write a paper for you and having the AI help you write a paper. And yes. those are two different things. And one of them, the AI writing the paper for you is, is not helpful with your cognitive skills because it's doing all of the work and you're going to copy and paste it and put it in. The AI helping you write a paper is actually helping with your cognitive skills if you're if it's actually doing that. And if it's not, so for an example, in my doctoral program right now, I'm taking classes after I papers and I'm using the AI in different ways in a couple of different things. Number one, I'm having it help me find, go through things that I've written previously and connect them to what I'm talking about now so that it's not just me only being able to remember what I've written and I've written a lot. It's about uh, helping me phrase things in a way that are better. And so if I were to just copy and paste straight from the AI into my submission, that would not make, that would not be helpful to me, except in the fact that I'm just trying to get it done and check off a box. And in school, there is some of that also, right? So, so that's yeah. a reality. But if I'm really trying to improve the way that I'm thinking, then it's just as helpful for me to use the AI as a coach as it is for me to email back and forth with another classmate or professor and figure out how to reframe my argument so that it actually makes sense. That's the kind of thing that, that I hear you saying perfectly clear is doing the work for you is not helping the cognitive skills develop. 100%. I, I, so I, I agree with that 100%. And actually, I, similar to what you said, I've actually kind of been talking about kind of a litmus test for automation, the use of automation in education, right? And so AI is, at the end of the day, just another automation. It's a mind-blowingly next-level automation, but at the end yeah. of the day, it's, an, it's a type of automation. And we've had other automations in education before, right? All kinds. The internet calculators come up all the time. We're talking to people about what happens with AI in the writing process because they kind of reference, oh, remember when calculators came in and they, we freaked out about that, destroying math education, but it didn't do that. We figured out how to incorporate it. So I think what's interesting to me is the litmus tests I've kind of developed mentally for kind of using automations in education are... Does it basically help develop or bypass the development of a skill? And my way of thinking about it is if it helps basically bypass the development, that could be problematic. But if you've already developed the skill so that you can basically bypass that now so you can focus on developing something else, then that's okay, right? And so I think math actually provides a pretty good example of how we can maybe think about this for writing. I think at the end of the day, it's really just a question of the right amount of automation at the right time in the journey. And it's okay to have increasing levels of automation as skills are mastered as you go through that process. And so, again, going back to the calculator example, which, again, if I had, you know, a dollar every time somebody mentioned the, the math and calculator example, when I've had these AI conversations, it would be great. But we sort of say, like, just because we have the calculator doesn't mean that we taught, stop teaching kids how to do long division by hand when they're in elementary school, right? But then it's sort of like you, they learn that skill. 
And then it's okay to give them a calculator to move on to other things. So you save time on doing things that will be really hard and time consuming to do manually. And you can move on to other developing other cognitive skills that are important, that are more sophisticated. And so there's a progression where in the beginning you do things by hand, then you have a calculator. And at that point, at some point you use a spreadsheet and then you move on to software, like maybe you're in graduate school or you're in college and you're using SAS and R and things like that for statistical software. So I think there's a really interesting analogy there that we could potentially think about as a model for what happens now going forward for writing. And I'd argue it's actually, we've already been down, started down this path. We just didn't know it in a way. The AI stuff now and its impact on the writing process is bringing it into focus and it's really challenging what, the way we've always done things. And in, in some way, maybe a good forcing function to think about what's important and when we do things and why we do things. But I think the, the math analogy, there's already the start of it in writing. And I, the example I give is that just because we have spell check doesn't mean we don't teach students how to, how to spell it properly. Just because we have grammar check doesn't mean that we gave up on teaching them grammar. And I think just because we have ChatGPT that can literally write a decent first draft doesn't mean that we don't teach the skills that are really important and foundational for how to do <clears throat> essentially original content creation or the first draft. So anyway, it's a long sort of uh, extension of what you were saying, but I think at the end of the day, it really is about skills development and it's okay to use technology and you probably should. You just have to be careful and make sure that for the particular activity you're doing, it's not actually essentially outsourcing the thinking and outsourcing the skill development and bypassing it as a result. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. And I think a good example of that is uh, citations in, in uh, bibliographies. Like, why in the world would you type all of that out by hand when you can put it in something like EasyBib and say, here's the source, give me a bibliography using these sources, that it makes no sense to do anything other than that. And because... Once you know how to do that, you know how tedious and slow it is, and it's a formulaic thing, you might as well have a computer do it because that's what computers are really good at. And, you know, I, I think that as we talk about these things more and more, we really have to get granular about what it is that we're actually talking about. And yes. we, we, can't, we can't just say, oh yeah, let's use AI or let's not use AI. We have to say, what's the purpose? What's the intent that we're trying to get at? And how is this helping the goal of what we're trying to accomplish? And if it's not helping the goal, then we should ditch it. State assessments are a good example of that. State assessments really don't help with our goal of educating kids. Everybody agrees about that. And yet we still do them. We don't stand up and say, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. We just go along with it because it's quote unquote required. And there needs to be some civil disobedience around things that are bad for our kids. And we're, we're not at a point where we can, where we have the courage to do that just yet. Yeah. And I, I think the granularity piece, I actually think is, is totally right. Cause I think with this, like a lot of things, the devil's in the details, right? If you're not being specific about what it is that the technology is doing and what, it, what learning outcome or what learning goal it's supporting or, or undermining, then you're likely to just apply it and not be aware of like what its negative or positive impacts really are. So one of the things that I'm excited about that I think we're going to be doing in the future is that really trying to map activities in the writing process to specific skills that will be developed along the way. Once you do that, then you can know that if I apply an automation to this part of the writing process or to this activity, that it's actually, then you kind of know like, okay, is it actually developing this or is it bypassing this? If they've already developed this skill because we did it without automation, now it's okay to automate that because we've already learned that skill. 
doing that mapping of what's the skill or the act, sorry, of what's the activity to the skill is something that we're, I think, going to be doing in the future to help kind of make that granularity more clear. Then it becomes much easier to sort of say, okay, it's okay to use it for this. It's not okay to use it for that um, because yeah. this is where the student is in the journey. Yeah. And just because you mentioned easy, I will tell you that we also in our work allow for, you know, automated citation stuff happening inside of the, uh, inside of our product. But one of the things that is really interesting to me is because we have conversations all the time with librarians and sometimes we'll get an old school librarian that'll be like, oh, you're making it too easy, right? Like you're doing this automated citation extraction stuff. And I sort of say, look, I get it. And I would say that uh, I don't disagree, but I think we're logically consistent. We sort of say, look, we, if you feel like, again, automating the citation stuff is somehow hurting the student's ability to understand the value of that, then I'd say, yes, you should do it the old school way, you know, by hand, probably in late elementary, maybe even early middle school, but hopefully late elementary. So they understand the value of what attribution is and what are all the different components that go into it. The question becomes, do you want them to continue then having to do that throughout middle school, high school, college, et cetera? And the answer is most people would say no, because once they've understood what the purpose of that is, what the value of a citation is, the value of attribution and giving credit to original author, they've learned that lesson. And now the question is, do you want them to have to reinvent the wheel every time they write a paper? And most people, I think, would agree that no, that's not the best use of time. Once they've learned that lesson, then give them technology like we have in Scribble or other citation tools that are out there to help them bypass that so they can focus on other things that are more important, like the, the looking at the quality of the sources, the structure of the paper, the strength of the arguments, those kinds of things, right? So I think in that way, we are actually logically consistent in what we preach, that you should probably do things the old school, non-technology way at a certain point in the journey. But the question is, at what point do you then switch, like in the calculator example, to doing things that allow students to focus their, their time and effort on other skills? Yeah, exactly. And And going back to the idea of the mapping the activities to the skills that are being developed. What, what I love about that approach is that you're saying, you're not just saying here's a task to do. You're saying, here's the skill that you need to learn. And in, in education, we often are like posting learning objectives and saying, this is what we want you to learn. But if you can be really particular about the reason why you're writing this paper by hand is to learn this skill of transferring thoughts from your brain to your hand. You can't do that any other way than by writing it out. And so we're intentionally going to slow everything down and force you to write by hand so that you can see what this process is like. Once you see what that process is like, then it's okay to start typing on the computer because you're understanding how difficult it is to get things from your brain down onto onto paper and and short circuiting that would be unwise because that's the skill we really want you to develop and and i think that that is really a powerful approach to that picture this a student drowning in tabs tools and notes struggling to piece together a research project sounds familiar right now, imagine all of that streamlined under one roof. That's Scribble. Scribble is more than just a tool, it's a game changer. Students can curate, annotate, cite, and write all in one place. Collaborative annotations, check. Automatic citations, check. Real-time feedback for educators, you bet. And the best part is, it's not just about making tasks easier. It's about freeing up time for higher-level learning and critical thinking. Are you worried about AI plagiarism? With Scribble, students show their authentic work process, making it genuine and credible. 
and I mentioned it won the Soup's Choice Award for College and Career Readiness. So if you're ready to transform the way your school approaches research and writing, head over to scribble.com and see the magic for yourself. That's S-C-R-I-B-L-E.com. The the second piece that you uh, mentioned is I this this idea of I use this for myself, therefore kid we should have schools adopting it. And why is that not a good approach for the rising generation? So it, it's connected to what I said earlier about the example of a teacher using it for lesson planning or an administrator using it for other things like we talked about versus a student using it, you know, in schooling. But I'll go a little further than that. Let me kind of do the first part first. I've had so many people say, um, I use it for work. It's great, right? And what I sort of say is that what I see happening is a bit of conflating of what I call learning mode with working mode or cognitive development mode with productivity mode. And that is that our students that are going through the K-12 system, going through schooling, even in higher ed to some extent or maybe to a great extent, their goal and our hope and goals for them is cognitive development, skills development, self-development, training yourself to be able to think critically, to be down the road, a good employee and a good citizen, right? As a result of that, optimizing learning. That is very different from what we expect of people and what we want, how they want, we want them to be when they're an employee, when they're, you know, even an adult kind of in the workplace or in society. In those environments, you're a team member, you're trying to support your team and your organization and their development. Maybe you're trying to contribute to your employer or to society. And in that environment, you are trying to optimize your productivity to serve those goals as best as you can. And to that extent and to that end, essentially any tool you use, as long as it's sort of ethical and doesn't break any laws, is going to help you get that work done, right? And I think what I see happening is adults, whether they be in the work environment, but particularly in education, let's say administrators and teachers that are saying, this thing is amazing. It's helping me be, be more productive. And so they sort of I think I've seen folks sort of make sort of a blanket statement that we need to embrace this. And I sort of say, well, you got to be careful. You have to draw a line between that kind of learning mode and working mode. We can't conflate the two, right? You should certainly be using it to do what you need to do. But if that, if that approach then makes it so that students aren't actually getting that cognitive development, that's the problem. And so drawing that line, I think is very, very important between what a student does and what their goal is and what we hope for them to develop versus what, you know, an employee or a team member does in the working environment. So that's part one. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I want to pause there for just a second because I think it's so powerful because schools are not about productivity. They're about learning, or at least they should be. And yet a lot of what we do is about productivity. All these assignments that need to be done, homework every day, all that stuff is not about learning. It's about productivity. And So if that is the goal of the school, which may be the unstated and unintended goal, then yeah, maybe it makes sense to bring in more AI stuff so that things can be automated more. But if you really sat down and said, is the goal productivity or learning, teachers would say the goal is learning, but their actions may not show that. And that's an important thing for for teachers to discuss and say, what is our goal? What are we really trying to do? I'm really glad you brought that up, that, that reframed it in a different way for me in my mind. That is, is really powerful. Go on. Yeah, no problem. And I'll just to add on that before I go to part two, I would say it's not that homework and all these things don't meet that goal or can't meet that goal. I think obviously students doing 
work, doing homework, doing other project-based learning, whatever it is that they're doing, those things hopefully do and are intended to support cognitive development and learning. But again, the devil's in the details, right? You really have to ask, are you designing homework and work that is actually doing that or does it feel like busy work? And, I, and actually, as a tangent, I'll just mention something we can come back to later. I think when the student feels like it's actually just busy work to cross off a list, that's when you get folks wanting to take the shortcuts because, because they don't see it as actually adding value yes. to their life or to their development. Yep. Uh, and I think in, in that it's arena, that's when they're more likely to take a shortcut, like using technology to do the work for them. Yeah. So it's a separate topic we can come back to about motivation and making sure that the work is actually relevant and they can see the value in the work you're assigning to them, frankly. And that's a lesson I think that a lot of people kind of learned during the pandemic. Sorry, I'm going further down this tangent, but maybe this is worth mentioning because it is still 2023 and we're just out of the pandemic. One of the things I learned and I saw happening during the pandemic was so many educators saying, well, we're on remote learning and the kids are at home, but they've turned out their cameras and I don't really know if they're there, if they're paying attention, et cetera. And that was a lesson during the pandemic that I feel like we should have taken and internalized to actually change a lot of what we're doing going forward. Because what the pandemic and that remote learning environment it showed us is historically, we've relied heavily on compliance, right? Uh -huh. The students are in front of me in, in the class, they're captive audience, they have to listen to what I'm saying. And if I'm, if they're not being engaged, if they're not doing the work, I can use sort of social group techniques, not in a malicious way, but just to kind of try to get them engaged. I can say, hey, call on cold call on somebody and the peer pressure of having them be there and have to say something kind of keeps them on their toes and gets them engaged and whatnot. Well, when all that falls away during the pandemic and they're at home and you can't rely on the compliance model because they're not a captive audience in front of you, all you have that you can rely on is inspiration and motivation. That's it, right? Yep. All you can do is sort of hope, give them something that you think will get them interested to actually want to do the work and engage in the content. And I think that's a lesson that we should, that unfortunately I feel like we may forget, but I really feel like we should not. We should really sort of say that should have been a lesson that Going forward, you know, we'll have compliance because that's the world. But the primary goal should be to try to inspire and motivate because that will yield stronger results and actually yield authentic learning in a way that compliance doesn't. Victor, and I'd argue way, in, in writing, that's also true. Yeah, totally, man. The way that I that I have phrased that so many times on this podcast is when the pandemic happened, kids realized that everything was made up and it was all fake. And that's what we told them. And... <laughs> They figured it out and they knew they'd been lied to for their whole entire lives. And that's really what happened because when we didn't have all those structures in place, all that compliance, then so many kids checked out and, and chose to, and for, in some situations, very good reason. All right. I've talked about that a lot. So let's move on to part two of this. I use it myself. Yeah. Yeah. So part two is, and it's connected to part one, but it's a little bit different is that when I've seen adults, I probably put this in the realm of education administrators and some teachers, but mostly administrators that I've talked to that have tried ChatGPT and are actually using it uh, and again, have embraced it because they like it. I've sort of noticed sort of two profiles that are kind of like two sides of the same coin where you've got folks that are good writers and folks that are not good writers, right? So the folks that are good writers say, this thing is amazing. Like I'm, I'm a fine writer, but this thing saves me so much time. And the flip side of that coin is somebody that's embraced ChatGPT because they acknowledge that they're not a strong writer. And this thing is a godsend because basically it helps them sound so much better and you know what they produce is so much better than what they could have done on their own. And what's interesting to me is 
in both cases, they're saying, let's embrace it because this thing has had a positive impact on their lives. Either time savings are actually being transformative in how they, how their writing is received by other folks. And, and what I say is that's fine that it's helping you. Right. But I think it's important not to let what it does for you necessarily uh, strongly influence or shape what we ought to be doing for the next generation that's coming up. And the reason for that is what you're expressing to me when you say that we have to embrace it in our schools, what you're showing to me is what I've been calling kind of a lived experience bias, which is that, hey, I was not, you know, I was not a great writer growing up and I'm still not a great writer now. And maybe that's because you don't have that natural ability to a certain extent, or maybe what our more likely scenario is that it, you just weren't taught it well. Because unfortunately, there's data that shows that when our teachers go through, you know, the, the certification and training programs in this country, there's very little of that time that they're spending on writing instruction and assessment. So the reality is that's a, a broader problem that we could talk about another time. But the reality is that you're probably not a great writer, partly because it was never taught to you well, right? Yeah. And yeah. so whatever your reason is, either you were in that situation or you were not naturally talented or interested in that. Or on the flip side of the coin, if you are a great writer, maybe you were naturally talented, or maybe you were one of the lucky few that actually had a great teacher that taught you how to, how to write well and spent a lot of time on it, emphasized that and gave you feedback and all that stuff that we, that we, that we hope is happening, right? But whatever that is, regardless of which bucket you're in, the point is that was your experience, right? And you right now as an adult, if you're sort of saying, well, we just need to kind of throw AI into the classroom, um, you're, you're not looking at it from a clean slate perspective, right? What you have to think about is what is a 15-year-old student or a 12-year-old student who doesn't have either one of those lived experiences, what's best for them, right? And we need to be able to provide them the experiences and the tools and the support to be able to learn those skills and to be able to become great writers independent of whatever your lived experience is. And so I sort of say we need to come at it from a first principles perspective and be very careful not to let our lived experience bias influence too strongly what we ought to be doing for the next generation. I don't know if that makes sense. I, I've kind of explained that a couple of different ways, but does that yeah, make sense? That that totally does. And what, what I'm hearing you say is a good writer or a poor writer knows how ChatGPT is helping because they've already had those experiences. But if a, if a student comes in and starts using it and doesn't know what those experiences are, they're actually not going to see the value in the tool either because they haven't had those experiences or they don't know what good writing looks like or they don't know how to comprehend that this is any different. Like the people taking this to a different thing of technology, which is cell phones and iPads and things like that, that people say that kids are digital natives. I've hated that word for a long time. The difference is, is that kids really just aren't afraid of breaking something. They like you and I probably haven't grown up with technology that they actually could break. Like I started using MS-DOS and I could type the wrong thing in and I could destroy my whole entire computer and have to start over. And, and I could download right. viruses off the internet when the internet came about. Those things, they can still happen, but it's a lot less likely for a kid to be able to ruin their iPhone by, by, going to a malicious website, they can install spyware and things like that for sure, but they, they, a lot right. more difficult to break it. And so that's really the difference. So we have this experience of, if I don't know and understand how to use this, then I'm afraid of it. Whereas kids are like, I don't know what this is. I'm just going to tap things until I get what I want. They're, they're just not afraid of breaking stuff. And that's really 
my version of what you're talking about here. Interesting. I think that what you just said uh, that I think kind of played off of what I was saying earlier that I'd like to respond to is that you said, you know, they, they're not necessarily going to know what good looks like. And, and to me, that's actually really, really important. I think that if we don't give them the ability to sort of learn the foundational skills without technology or with minimal technology or with, again, scaled up scaffolded technology over time, we kind of take the shortcut and let them just use it to kind of create the first draft from a very early age without those foundational skills being developed first. We run into a, we run into a, a situation and we will over time have a world in which people won't know what good looks like, right? Because they weren't taught that. We kind of, by, we kind of bypass that skill. And I think that's, personally, I think that's a problem. And that's not what I want to see happen. I think it's really important that folks have some basic understanding of what's happening under the hood when they're using automation and technology, right? And that's why I like the idea that even though we have calculators, we do teach students how to do foundational stuff without the calculator to start with. And I remember having this conversation with a kind of a high profile chief academic officer of a very large district in Texas. And they made the analogy of this. So I said, well, do we essentially, he didn't use the words like we don't need to teach writing anymore, but he sort of gave this analogy of like, well, I've got this phone in my hand. When I was a student, I had to used to go to the library and all that. I don't have to do that anymore. I can just use this. And isn't that really what we ought to be doing now going forward with this chat GPT stuff? And I sort of said, look, we can have a long discussion about it, but if you really kind of believe what you're telling me now, I challenge you to stop teaching kids how to do uh, math by hand, you know, and just give them calculators. And I think when you make it that crisp and clear and you sort of say, like, if you really believe what that, if you really kind of believe that this technology is going to obviate the need for that foundational skill development in a way, okay, let me hold your feet to the fire. You actually stop teaching math, just give them calculators. And he kind of took a step back and he's like, okay, I see what you're saying. But I think that's the point is that we want them to know what good looks like. And if you don't develop the foundational skills, it's really hard to know when you get an output out of whatever the automation or the technology is that is, that is problematic. And I'd argue it's actually more important with the ChatGPT and writing stuff than it is for math. Because cal with the calculator, it's discrete. It's probably very unlikely you're going to get a wrong output. You just may not know what's happening inside the black box. With ChatGPT and the other AI, we know from at least what we know so far that is, it is possible for actually to produce incorrect things and tell you that very confidently and for you to believe that it's right because it's maybe right most of the time, right? Because maybe the training data doesn't cover certain topics or maybe you know, there are other issues with it, right? We've, we've heard of this concept of them hallucinating. So I think even more than in math and calculator analogy for this writing and chat GPT stuff, I think it's really important that we make sure they understand to have a certain level of skepticism and to know that like you have to double check your facts and you have to be able to kind of think critically about this because not everything it tells you at least at this point in time, is going to be believable. And so that's why I think teaching them what good looks like and teaching them the foundational skills to think critically about it and not just accept it as being correct all the time is really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, this, I, I think you're right on with this. I think it's great. Appreciate you saying that. The real thing with calculators is kids still need number sense. And yeah. that's really, that's why we teach uh, the base. So they have number sense. They need a sense of literacy with writing as well. They need to understand yes. what they're saying and what things are. So uh, this is really good. Once again, uh, Victor, the uh, scribble.com, S-C-R-I-B-L-E, one B, not two Bs. Uh, doc. Be sure to go and check that out. Thank you again for being part of Transformative Principle. This has been awesome. Is there any other way you want people to connect with you besides just going to scribble.com? No, that's pretty good. We have an increasing sort of presence on LinkedIn, so that's always good. But yeah, connect with us. We'd love to 
help you as best we can make this transition to this whole AI era. We're thinking very deeply about the, the, both the risks as well as the transformational benefits of AI. And I think that one of the things that I can say is that we're thinking deeply about how to integrate AI into what we've done for the writing process going forward. And that's stuff people see from us going forward. But what we've been able to do and what we can help with right now is actually help mitigate some of the downside risks that people are freaking out about because we're really able to shift assessment for writing from the end work product to the process. And I think that's kind of a, an emerging best practice for assessment in the AI era. Yeah. So we can help you with that now and you'll see good stuff from us that's more AI infused going forward. Yeah. Very cool. Hey man, I appreciate you being here and thanks so much for your time and for your, your deep thoughts about this. It's been a, a different interview than what we've done already. So I appreciate you being so thoughtful and sharing that with us. Happy to do it. It's an engaging conversation. And these are all the important conversations we need to have right now in this transition period. So happy to do it. Edited by Gage Sanderson.